This is Michael Boss, the host and producer of Tales of the Magic Skagit. This is Michelle Kelvin, Adenay, owner of Beaver Tales Coffee, Lacona, Washington. And this is Tony Kladsky's kayakist, co-owner of Beaver Tales Coffee. Welcome to Beaver Tales, a podcast series by and about the first peoples of the Skagit Valley, brought to you by Meyer Sign. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. Well, I'm very excited. This is uh, our first Beaver's Tale episode. And uh, first of all, I want to introduce the folks who are here, and perhaps the best thing to do is to actually let them introduce themselves. Eric, I'm going to start with you, man. Uh, my name is Eric Day. Uh, my Indian name is Stolza, which in our language means moose. Moose. Moose, yes. All right. Michelle Calvin, one of the owners of Beaver Tales Coffee. My clinket name is Adenaich, which means uh, my brain just shut down completely. <laughs> but I know. Keeper of the knowledge. <laughs> Speaker of the truth. Speaker and, of the truth. And holder of the knowledge, yes. And holder of the knowledge. <laughs> I need more coffee. That's a, Tony, that's a tough act to follow, but go ahead. I've followed tough acts all my life. I'm sure you have. Tony Clattisby, Bakaya Cut, Swinomish Tribal member, and co-owner of Beaver Tales. Awesome. And this is, of course, the Beaver Tales series. And um, as our first podcast, we've chosen a subject <laughs> that I know is near and dear to the hearts of uh, Michelle and Tony, and I suspect Eric as well, which is why he is here with us. <laughs> And the subject is canoe journey. And uh, to get the discussion going, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned since uh, my wife and I have lived in the Magic Gadget now for the last nine years is I certainly knew a little bit about who the first peoples were in the Skagit Valley when I came here, but I have to say that it has taken me a while to even begin to appreciate the role that canoes um, have played. And it's silly that it would have taken me this long. We're talking about coastal Salish people. We're talking about folks who very likely came here as far back as 16,000 years ago, if you want to go uh, according to the archaeological digs in uh, Cooper's Ferry in uh, Idaho. And there were artifacts that were found dating back to 16,000 years that were similar to those found in Asia. And the theory is that uh, people didn't arrive by the land bridge in this case because this was about 3,000 years before the land bridge migrations. They most likely came here by boat. And so one of the first things I want to talk about is the significance of canoes to the culture of uh, the Swinomish people. <laughs> um, as far as the importance of canoes, you know, we're, we're um, I guess we're always, we're, we're taught that, you know, this out here, the Puget Sound area, the, the Coast Salish Sea, as it is called now, um, we call those our ancestral highways because that's how our people traveled to get from place to place. And, and we traveled in, in, the, in the family canoes. Um, to go to different spots, gathering spots, I guess you could call them. Um, I always say that that our people were, we weren't stupid people. 
We were very smart people. And we knew the places, the places to go where we'd be safe, where we'd be protected. You know, places like uh, Cama Beach, Rosario, Bowman's Bay, just about any state park that, that you can think of. Uh, more than likely there was, there was a native, um, we, call, we call them temporary villages, that they'd set up there and then go out into the water and collect the seafoods and whatever else. There was, you know, probably spots as well for going up into the woods, going out into the woods to get the berries and get the get the um, deer and the elk and you know, any other kind of hunting or gathering that needed to be done out there. So that's um, why we do the tribal journeys, basically, is, is to remember that and to remind our kids of that's where we come from and that's who we are as Native people. So. How did the how did the role of uh, the, the canoe change um, with uh, uh, a, after first contact? Totally landlocked this. Changing your land, take your transportation away. Mm -hmm. They destroyed most of our our large vessels. What was the, what was the rationale for that? Landlocking. Landlocking. Keep us where we're at. Yeah. You know, the reservation travel. system. Yeah. The yeah. prison system. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you don't want some, somebody to, to leave, you take away your transportation. You know, it'd be, it'd be no different today than taking somebody's car away. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about the canoes is we went to war with them and we went to welcome you with them too yeah they were transportation they were they were a necessity and you think about the times back before contact the whole topographical area of Skagit was different everything was different there was nothing that was the same Fur Island wasn't Fur Island mm -hmm. you know Magic Skagit emptied out into into Samish Bay. You know, one of its tributaries came down there. They blocked that off. Um, the canoes. You know, the the source of income that you get from owning a canoe at that time was like being rich the ability to produce, the ability to gather, the ability to hunt, the ability to move from spot to spot, to be able to go where what is plentiful for what we need. And that was the reasoning behind the temporary homesteads that we had planted all over the valley. Michelle, you've got a unique perspective on this because as an Anglo, how, how did you experience canoe culture? What was your how, how did this happen for you? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, actually, it's quite a story and not just my story, but I was speaking with Doug Chilton in Clinkett um, out of Alaska. He's a clan brother, beaver, uh, Deshiton. And um, in 2008, I was involved with United Way of Southeast Alaska, and we made a donation to the One People Canoe Society for a journey that was happening from Huna, Alaska to Juneau, Alaska for celebration in 2008. 
And on that journey, um, I came to realize the importance of it. And the importance of that journey was the fact that we were the first canoes in over 100 years to travel on a journey wow. in Alaska. That's amazing. Same reason down here, right? The the canoes were destroyed. The culture, you know, was was being dis, trying to be dismantled. Um, and so on that journey as well, we uh, I won't say reenacted, but um, one of the uh, participants on the canoe journey was John Duncan. He's a Kiksadi, which is Frog Clan out of Sitka, and his ancestor was Catlayan who drove the Russians out of Sitka with a hammer. And so on that journey, uh, we were in Hantroller's Cove and John pointed at five women and he said, you, 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 and you, you're my wives. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, what? You know, hmm. And uh, we got to, to Ock Bay and we stopped and we have to ask permission to come ashore because that's not our territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, you know, he stood up in the canoe and his five wives stood up in the canoe and we spoke Clinket and we spoke English and were welcomed ashore um, that first canoe. So the significance of that also is the fact that between 2008 and my last canoe journey in Alaska, which was 2018, the canoe culture has been able to grow in Alaska as well. And we had in 2018, I think 11 canoes, might have been 13, from that original two that traveled. Mm-hmm. And we are involving more and more communities. And so I got involved as a result of work that I had done in social services um, and with United Way. I was invited back in 2010 um, to paddle from Angoon to Juneau for celebration. Again, two canoes. And then that was the year, also 2010, that um, I came down and paddled for my first canoe journey in Washington and ended up being the skipper, one of the skippers for the Alaska Canoe family um, because Doug became ill and one was unable to skipper. And um, so I was, I was able to skipper. And that year also, Eric came up to Alaska to my home in Juneau and invited the Alaska Canoe family down Uh for um, Paddle to Swinomish for 2011. And I'd like him to tell you a little bit about that experience. You hadn't been to Alaska, had you? No. Yeah, so yeah, you came up to Alaska um, and to visit. So what was that that experience like for you, Eric? Um, Well... You know, like like Michelle said, you know, that was my first time uh, being in Alaska. I'd never gone up there before. I've always wanted to, but I did. Um, it's kind of crazy how it worked out. Um, you know, our, our coordinator was supposed to go up there, Aurelia. Um, she was supposed to go up and and do the invite, but uh, she uh, she had an operation not too long before that, and so she couldn't travel. So she asked me to go in her place, and so I did. And um, um, another funny part too, you know, when when they found out up there that a canoe skipper was coming up, they asked if I could stay an extra day, and we actually got out on a canoe and paddled around to Ock Park, where I asked for permission to come ashore. And they had the five different clans that were represented. The, Eagle, the 
wolf. Um, raven. Yeah, raven, and I can't remember the other ones now. But anyways, there was five clans represented, and I had that ask ask permission to come ashore, and then each one of the five different clan leaders granted me permission to come ashore, and. To me, it was a it was a reminder of, of why we do what we do, um, because I literally had to keep the canoe off the shore. You know, when when we land on journey nowadays, you know, we put the nose of the canoe onto the onto the shore, and then somebody you know holds onto the canoe, you know, so so we don't have to worry about you know, it being unsteady or right. whatever, you know, trying to do what they it's just the community doing what they can to protect us and, and make sure that we're we're okay when we when we land but I couldn't land the canoe so it, I was busy you know steadying the canoe and then asking permission to come ashore and then and waiting for all five of them to, to grant us permission to come ashore and you know when, when I landed I, I, I thought about the significance of what what I had just done then and, and you know, we, we do we do the protocol landings. Uh, people, a lot of people you know, that aren't familiar with it, they they tend to think it's a show that we're doing a parade. You know, because we we circle the we circle the area, show both sides of the canoe, and when we're in front of the recognized leader of the community, we look, hold up our paddles up. You know, basically showing our hands, saying you know we don't have anything. And by showing both sides of the canoe, you know, that's another way of saying that we're not hiding anything. Right. And then we ask permission to come ashore and state our purpose. Because, you know, back before contact, as, 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 as has been said earlier, um, you know, we, we use, like I was saying earlier, we use the canoes to go out and do the gathering. And we also used it to, to, for our own, like, personal gathering. Like um, birthdays, weddings, you know, um, somebody passing on, because you know, we like to celebrate how they contributed to our community, as opposed to them, you know, leaving us, you know, just how they benefit us in in, in the community and whatnot. But anyways, they're also used for uh, like if we had a issue with another village, so we'd tow the the war canoes behind a family canoe, and then we'd just get off beach somewhere. And, and our warriors would jump in the canoes and they would storm, storm the beach and then have their issue, with, settle the issue with that village or whatever. And so this is why we do all of the protocol landings mm -hmm. because we, we want to remind our kids that this is how we travel and that we always have to be in, in a respectful way when we come to somebody else's territory and let them know that we don't come to do any harm, we come to share who we are, I guess. Eric and so that's that was the significance yeah. of that that trip. Eric and Tony, what what are your earliest memories of of canoes as as children growing up uh, in, in the Swinomish community? Well, for us, it was mostly. I mean, we grew up with the racing canoes, uh -huh. and and that those are those canoes are styled actually. They call them war canoe races because they are what they're styled after what our warriors used what and we used had for, yeah. for for a war and, but they now nowadays they just have races you know a tribe hosts a canoe race and then we go up there and the kid mostly it's 
I mean, it goes from little kids all the way up to adults. And but for our community, it's more like the kids do it. It's but that's how we grew up. Uh, my uncle, my one of my uncles was uh, pulled with a Lummi canoe up there, and so we were always traveling to the canoe races, and so that's how we grew up with the canoes. The family canoes actually didn't come around until 1989. That was uh, this Washington State Centennial. Um, they wanted to include the tribes in on, on that celebration, and so the tribes got together and had talked about talked about bringing the canoe family ways back, the traveling canoes back, but didn't have didn't have the funding to do so. Yeah. And so the yeah. opportunity came in 1989, and there was 13 canoes that landed on the shores at Golden Gardens Park. Yeah. And that, that, was, that was basically the birth of, of Canoe Journey. All right. So what's going on now? You guys, you, you, you've got, I think, some, some major activities coming up. Tony, I think there's, is there, uh, there's some new canoes or a new canoe being built? I want to go back to, before, to your earlier question. What, yeah. What was my earliest recollection? Yeah. The, the war canoe, it, it, if you think about it, it's kind of ironic that they allow us to keep the one thing that allowed us to settle our differences with another <laughs> tribe. Well, you know, that, that warrior mentality never goes away. Um, and the, the earliest recollections for me were always, you know, the canoe clubs and the canoe races. and But, you know, it's... It's something that that has, as the dominant society allowed us to keep those and destroy our traveling canoes, what they didn't realize is they kept the warriors alive. That memory of the warriors, the warriors will always live. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's why I want to go back to the thinking of the United States again, like I was talking about earlier. You know, everything that they've tried to do to us, they've everything that they've tried to harm us with has backfired on them. Whether they're trying to eliminate us or trying to, to quell our voice, everything that they've ever attempted to do, we've solved the solution. And, you know, it's, it's no different with our travel and our... And, and, you know, another thing about the canoes is, you know, they were commerce. Right. You know, and as as a owner of commerce in a in a in a white town, a white society, is a challenge. The stereotypes have to kind of go away. They have to drop. They have to be put aside. If you're really going to accept the fact that. We've always had commerce. We've always been traders. We've always had a source of income. Well, creating this environment here that we're doing not only 
goes against every government's idea of trying to hold us down. Just makes my heart happy. <laughs> Mine. Yeah. You Michelle, know. I'm, I'm, something I'm curious about is, what did your experience with Canoe Journey, how did that change you? What, what, what have you taken away from it? Oh. And the reason I ask this question <laughs> is because it, it seems as though when you go back a number of years and you start looking at where bridges could start to be built between the dominant culture and the original culture, canoes seem to be a part of that. It was kind of something that everybody could kind of get together and celebrate, you know, starting back with uh, the canoe races from a number of years ago. Well, I think for me, um, you know, One People, One People Canoe Society is the name of that, One People. Um, and, you know, Tony has a similar uh, viewpoint as, as far as we're all related, right? We're all related. Um, Doug Chilton and his clan brothers put together One People Canoe Society. And in Alaska, um, you know, we have, we have tribal, we have clan canoes. So the canoe that I skippered was the uh, Deshitan Raven Beaver Canoe. And, um, and uh, you know, so technically it was family, but there was also a mix of people. It was anybody who wanted to participate, who was willing to learn, who was willing to um, support, was allowed to participate. And it didn't matter if you were tribal or not tribal. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I was invited to participate in 2008. Um, as a result of work that I had done from 2001 when I moved to Alaska um, with regard to um, just raising awareness to injustice and inequities um, in the social services area that I worked in and the grant processes and things like that and um, working with United Way of Southeast Alaska and we were approached right that's that's how I got involved we were approached for funding for this first trip in a hundred years and and that part of that was like, we have a space for somebody from your organization on the canoe. But it changed me because in Huna, I wouldn't know for, you know, two years that that would be my home. That would be my adopted village. I also didn't know that when I was there, we had a eagle shark pole installed in the village. I didn't know that I would be an eagle shark either. Right. And so I look back at that and I thought, you know, that was meant to be. I was mm -hmm. meant to be on that trip. I was meant to be in that village. I was meant to be there when that pole was risen in there in that celebration. And, um, you know, it was also the first place that I felt connected. I was one of very few non-native people on that trip. Right. And, you know, I really just sat back and watched and I sat back and listened because it wasn't a it wasn't about me, right? It was about this journey and it was about witnessing a journey um, and learning. Mm -hmm. And that's really the approach I had taken all along. Right. Right. Um, but it changed me. It changed me. That first trip changed me. That first trip where John Duncan and I sat around the fire in Hand Troller's Cove talking about his youth and what he was doing and why he was there um, and how, how that journey changed him as an elder. First journey in over 100 years. And he wasn't a healthy man at that time. Yeah. 
um, and how that changed him and listening to the other people that were involved with that and how that changed them right mm -hmm. um, you know Tony and I talked about this and he says that Eric I think agrees if you go on canoe journey and you don't change in some way you haven't been on canoe journey been on that it changes you you know the the place that I really felt the change though 2010 and we landed in Swinomish and um, you know I I remember this I pitched my tent up by the smokehouse I'm a horrible tent pitcher it's always on a hill always no matter how flat it looks it's always on a hill and I'm laying in my tent with my head downhill towards the field and I'm listening to the drums in the smokehouse and I felt like home yeah right yeah. like yeah. it was that place and and I I'll never forget that I'll never forget the smokehouse I'll never forget the feeling I'll never forget sitting around in the camp feeling you know, so loved, actually, and so included in that. And so that's, you know, I really felt like home. And then, you know, uh, and watching the families, watching the culture, watching how people truly loved and cared about each other, right? Observing that and saying, why don't I have that? What's missing in my life that I'm not experiencing that? you know, in my situation. Yeah. Um, you know, here in the shop, we post the canoe rules. The canoe rules are listed here in the shop. And, and this <coughs> coffee shop was based, about, based on canoe values, you know, not causing harm to ourselves or others, about generosity, about caring, about, you know, helping, about being part of the solution that's what the shop's based mm -hmm. on right that's mm -hmm. really what we want to impart is what we learned on journey um and how we can how we can impact positively in our community right. and help other people do that and just as a side note that particular canoe rules is the most popular picture taken in this building the one that's posted the most on Google. Yeah. Right? Yeah. People are like, can I take a picture of these canoe rolls? By all means. And, you know, we didn't come up with those. Um, those those were adopted, I believe, by the Muckleshoot Canoe family. If you look online, you'll see that it could be, I don't know, do you know, Eric? I don't know. I think <clears throat> when I looked it up, because I like to attribute <clears throat> things correctly. I don't own those. I didn't make them. I didn't do them. Um, but when I looked up on Intertribal Canoe Journey, they come up and then there's like a credit and I want to think it was the Muckleshoot canoe family but you know that's how I try and live my life 24 7 365 and I can remember the day that I came to that conclusion as a matter of fact and I was in Port Townsend and I had skippered into Port Townsend and um, we had gone to go eat I needed a break from the crew and uh, I'm in a restaurant and uh, I'm sitting there and there's a beer on the table. And I'm looking at that beer and I'm like, what am I doing, right? That's not part of canoe journey, you know? No abuse of self or others. Yeah. And it was that moment in Port Townsend, looking at that beer that I shoved it aside and I said, you know what, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do it 24-7, 365. Mm -hmm. And that was the date that I changed my life and made changes in how 
I deal with people, how I want to be treated, um, you know, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to act. And it was canoe journey, right? It was that whole experience of doing that. And I'd like for other people to have that experience, right? Um, for instance, my brother, Richard, who's now deceased, um, he joined us as Swinomish in 2010. Mm. And he and I paddled out of Swinomish on the canoe in the channel. And, um, you know, his life was changed. That was one thing that Rick and I shared together was canoe, well, canoe life. Well. And I have other brothers, and I love all of my brothers, and we all have things that we share, but Rick and I shared this. Well. And in 2014, he was adopted into my clan, and he has a clinket name. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, it was life-changing for him as well. When he was there, he just really connected for the first time. You know, so being able to connect to our surroundings, being able to connect to people that that we love, right? I mean, my family is my family, yeah. and my tribal family is my family. So, yeah, I it's it's just incredible. Now, Eric, I've got a, a question for you. Um, what what does the future of the canoe journey look like uh, here uh, in, in uh, the Swinomish Nation? Um, it looks that it actually looks very, very promising, very good. Um, when when we first started journey, um, just, I also want to reflect a little bit on the question you had for her, how it changed me as a definitely as a, how canoe journey changed me. Um, you know, the first one was in 1989, and uh, we just had the racing canoes then. Um, our um, Senate at that time was like I like to say they were focused more on the money aspect. You know, you go, you get a board canoe, you go to the races. They win, you know, win, get first place, second place, whatever. You get that, you get that money, and so basically it would pay for itself. Or they didn't see the importance of of the journey itself. So, so we had racing canoes in '89, but we were part of the very first one. Me and my brother and then there was a few of us that that took the racing canoe from Suquamish and landed at Golden Gardens Park so we were part of the first first one and uh, up until that time I was I was lost literally lost I was knee-deep in my addictions drinking a lot and, and that was consuming my whole life and and that awakened in me that same spirit that Michelle was talking about about getting away from from the alcohol getting out of that addiction and it wasn't until 92 that I went into, or actually two years later, 90, 91, 90, 91 was when I went into treatment. And I'd, I've been sober for 30 plus years now. Congratulations, and Eric. It'll be 31 here in January. Wow, what an accomplishment. <clears throat> and so basically, that's how Canoe Journey changed my life. Wow. And, and I say, you know, the future of the canoes looks very promising because now we have, you know, when we left, in 2002 for Quinault, we literally had six polars, two ground crew, and and we picked up my son, who at that time was six, and uh, he was our third ground crew. And and the two ground crew was my mom and one of our elders. Um, she had to be mid-50s, 50s, maybe something like that at that time. So, And we had an old beat-up uh, RV, and, a few tents and whatnot, but you know we traveled 
all the way out to Connaught, um, like that. And today we have four canoes, um, over two, three hundred people that show up. Wow. The kids are just, they just love singing the songs and dancing and doing all that. And, and that was the result of the work that we did in 2011 when we hosted the Tribal Journeys. Wow that awakened this, the canoe spirit within the whole community. Wow. You know, I always remember that one time um, I was asked to do a, um, lead a little field trip for some students from the UW. And, uh, you know, my brother, my cousin, I think there's like four, four or five of us. Our, our current vice chairman was there. He was just on the Senate. He had just gotten on the Senate then. Him and there was like five of us that were doing this. And I, I started singing one of our songs. And then all of a sudden I heard these voices in, in, our, in our social service building. You know, there's two floors. I heard these voices from up, up here in the corner up here. And the kids were in one of the offices doing crafts. And they heard me singing that song and they'd come right out. Didn't even have to ask them, they'd come right out and they just started singing right along with us. You know, and that's, that's why I say it looks promising for the journey. And our kids love it. And they definitely want to learn. They definitely want to learn. How many, how many people are there who uh, have the knowledge of constructing the canoes? Um, is that something that you feel is being uh, passed along? It's being passed along somewhere. <laughs> our, our canoe, actually, the Squally Tooted Sea Salad is the one I travel on. And it's actually sitting in my yard. Um, that's pretty much where it lives when we're not out on the water. But um, anyways, that's a it's a cedar strip canoe, and it's over there too. It's a cedar strip canoe. It was a. Uh, I like to say it's uh, up here. Yep, it's up on the wall up there. Right okay. up this way. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, it's. I like to say it's. Got some old school and some new school in it. It's a second growth cedar that, that we had gotten from up on uh, Mount Baker. And the original intention of that was going to be a dugout canoe. And that didn't work out. So we ended up, we got uh, Theron Parker from Nia Bay. Um, it was his fifth canoe that he built. And uh, so that's the cedar strip canoe. The other, The other three are actually fiberglass canoes. Um, I'm sure the knowledge is here somewhere. We just need to, I guess, tap into it and start cultivating it in, in a way. And But it's definitely alive somewhere else. This concludes part one of Canoe Journey. In part two, we'll learn more about Tony Cladusby's journey and his hopes and aspirations for the future of canoe culture among the first people of the Skagit.